Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Linda Calhoun, founder and executive producer of Career Girls and chair of the club's International Relations Member-Led Forum. It's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Jacob Kurtzer, Humanitarian Agenda Interim Director at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. Jacob Kurtzer's primary focus has been the Task Force on Humanitarian Access, which examines challenges in access to aid in complex man-made and natural emergencies. Prior to joining CSIS, Jacob spent seven years with the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, most recently as head of communications for the ICRC delegation in Israel and the occupied territories, also working in South Sudan and Myanmar. Jacob earned a master's in peace and conflict studies from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia, where he studied as a Rotary Foundation World Fellow. He also holds a bachelor's in philosophy from the University of Maryland College Park with a citation in religious studies and as an alumnus of the College Park Scholars Public Leadership Program. Please join me in welcoming Jacob Kurtzer. Thank you very much, Linda, and the Commonwealth Club for hosting this virtual event. My name is Jake Kurtzer. I'm the acting director of the Humanitarian Agenda at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. As Linda mentioned, I previously worked for the International Committee of the Red Cross, as well as an NGO called Refugees International. And while some of my comments today will draw upon those experiences, I no longer represent them or speak on their behalf. CSIS is a bipartisan nonprofit policy research organization dedicating to advancing practical ideas to address the world's greatest challenges. At CSIS, our goal is to define the future of national security. We're guided by a distinct set of values, nonpartisanship, independent thought, and cross-disciplinary scholarship. And our values work in concert toward the goal of making real-world impact. Our view is that humanitarian crises are national security crises, and that the United States stands to gain from funding and advocating for comprehensive response to these human crises. Elected officials from both parties consistently support foreign assistance, and again from both parties argue that U.S. leadership in humanitarian action is both a moral duty and is rooted in national interests, economic, and security. At the Humanitarian Agenda, we focus on the global, national, and regional disasters faced by individuals and communities affected by armed conflict. There is no shortage of work. Globally, around 70 million people have been displaced by violence and conflict, uprooted from their homes, and forced to flee due to the impacts of war. And even higher numbers of people are in need, who could or would not flee their homes, but whose lives have been negatively impacted by violence. These are the issues that we're studying, reporting on, and trying to find solutions for. How to help those most vulnerable in complicated situations of war and violence through changes in U.S. policy. It goes without saying, as we sit here together from our homes and maybe our offices, that we're in unprecedented times. I remain grateful to be able to continue working on a part of the foreign policy and national security spectrum that looks at the challenges facing those most disadvantages. 
Like many of you, I'm trying to balance our ongoing work while staying attuned to the hyper-evolving impacts of COVID-19. For today, I'll start by speaking to the humanitarian situation around the world prior to the outbreak, including the challenge of the denial of humanitarian access, and then turn briefly to the impacts of COVID-19 and the impacts it will have on many of those same contexts. In brief, humanitarian crises are getting longer and more acute, requiring sustained political and financial support. Basic norms of international law and humanitarian practice are under attack by states and by non-state armed groups, including terrorists and criminal gangs. These factors contribute to a substantial increase in need at a time when political trends have many states turning their focus inward and away from international norms. COVID-19 has the potential to ex expedite these trends. Individuals and communities already impacted by armed violence find themselves particularly vulnerable. While uncertainty prevails about when and how COVID-19 will hit hardest in these vulnerable contexts, the prevailing conditions, including deteriorated health infrastructure, crowding and congestion, lack of access to water and sanitation, surely create a substantially higher risk portfolio. The humanitarian response to COVID mirrors that domestically. Refugees and IDPs and others affected by violence need clear information and guidance, specialized equipment and care, and the ability to engage in personal and community practice to stop the spread. Whether and how they can achieve those goals in those contexts is an open question. In my view, COVID will amplify the existing conflict and humanitarian trends. In areas of ongoing hostility like Yemen and Syria, the attention to COVID-19 and the need for widespread response may create opportunities for increased violence and predation. In areas where trends have been more positive, the collective understanding of a need for a coherent COVID response could lead to negotiated settlements or at least pauses in violence. For the United States, my concern is that this pandemic will contribute to the trend of a U.S. leadership vacuum in the humanitarian sector. The world is watching as our domestic response has been slow and limited, with political posturing dominating headlines. Internationally, while some funds have been programmed towards response in humanitarian contexts, the U.S. is seen as a recipient of international largesse rather than a donor. The domestic trauma may turn our national focus inward at exactly the wrong time, and our work is to push back against that tide. So I'd like to go back now and draw out some of these thoughts. Before I jump into it, I want to highlight two things that I saw yesterday that particularly struck me about the time we're living in. The first was an article written by Peter Maurer, president of the International Committee of the Red Cross. I had the privilege, privilege of working directly with President Maurer on a number of occasions. I find him honest and sincere, but most of all, I find him to be an incredible optimist. In one meeting last year, a participant was rightly lamenting the increased attack on medical facilities in war zones. President Maurer responded that we have an imperative to look not only at those facilities that have been attacked, but also at those that have been spared, and to recognize that the constraints put in place by international law can work. He has a great ability to refocus on trends that are positive. But this week, President Maurer wrote an article that included the words, I am scared, and that shook me. I have worked in the humanitarian sector for around 12 years and have many friends and colleagues who remain actively engaged in humanitarian operations. 
Humanitarian aid workers rarely admit and even more rarely project fear. Concern and worry, yes. Fear, no. I recently had a colleague at CSIS, a fellow from our military program, say to me that humanitarians are the crazy ones because they go into the situations without force protection. And it may be bravado or machismo, but there's a confidence carried by many international aid workers that perhaps stems from taking on risk voluntarily. Some international workers also feel that they mustn't show concern for their own well-being, that in some ways that is a privilege of being able to leave. Thus, the projection of fear by President Maurer, speaking on behalf of the ICRC and also in a sense for the broader humanitarian community, is striking in its message of concern and helplessness of what we're experiencing now and are projected to experience in the near future. The second was the videos of the arrival of the United States Naval Ship Comfort in New York City. As an American citizen, I have maintained, with caveats, a pride in the ability of the United States to project, project not just military power, but also humanitarian power. U.S. naval ships have carried out relief missions in Haiti, Indonesia, and other places where natural disasters have left people needing essential health services. Seeing a U.S. naval ship sailing into the Port of New York, not in a moment of pride for a job well done, but in a moment of urgent need for our fellow citizens, conveyed to me the magnitude of this moment. As a humanitarian worker from a non-conflict-affected environment, I tried but often was unable to truly relate my experience with the other, with the communities in which we were working. Now watching the humanitarian aid come to us, watching field hospitals go up in Central Park, well, it is humbling. And I'm starting with these thoughts to situate the comments I'm going to share in the current context. While we're all hyper-vigilant to the ongoing crisis and the changes it's making to our normal course of business here, life does go on. And particularly in the humanitarian world, conflicts continue and people's needs are increasingly dire. When we first scheduled this event, our primary focus was to talk about the Task Force on Humanitarian Access and the global humanitarian picture. So I'd like to take a few minutes now to talk about current events, the work of our task force, and the outcomes we came up with. The global humanitarian picture is bleak. Mark Lowcock, the UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, released their annual appeal for 2020 in December. In his estimations, 168 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance around the world, and the UN launched an appeal for $29 billion to respond. The figure seems high, but when factoring in that UN agencies and NGOs are replicating functions of the state, providing water, healthcare, food, shelter, education, and in some cases, economic activities for millions of people, it's actually quite small. For comparison, the annual budget of the city of San Francisco, with a population of under a million, is $11 billion. UN appeals consider the funding needs for some of the biggest humanitarian organizations within the UN system, the UN High Commission for Refugees, the World Food Program, UNICEF, and others, but they're not comprehensive of all the needs. Mark Lopak also noted an increase of 22 million people in need in 2019 and called attention to alarming trends, including an increase in attacks against children and over 800 attacks in 2018 alone on health facilities across all contexts. In addition to those trends, here are some other trends in the global humanitarian picture to think about. Some things remain the same. The need is growing and the funding is increasing, 
but the needs are outpacing the funding. So while last year saw the highest level of funding provided by donors, the gap between needs and funding is increasing at an annual, on an annual basis. Second, the key donors remain the same. The US, the EU as a collective and individual European states continue to bear the lion's share of financial, of finan the, the financial lion's share of the response. And third, a small subset of countries account for the majority of need. And I think we can think about what these are, the Afghanistan, South Sudan's, Somalia's, Yemen's of the world. Some trends are new. We're seeing new actors and new donors in the humanitarian environment. New actors in a negative sense, including the diversity of armed actors in, impacting the response, uh, this, this, um, this illusion of armed groups creating new uh, weapons bearers in the battlefield. But we're also seeing new donors. Gulf states are increasingly funding response for humanitarian crises in the Middle East, but with their own agendas and with their own ways of doing business. We've also seen an increase in the number of partners, mosques and churches, and the networks of funding that they bring are an increasingly important player in the humanitarian space. We've also seen private sector take a much more substantial role in, in engaging in humanitarian activities, seeing the displaced communities and those vulnerable populations, not just as beneficiaries of charity, but also as potential markets. And we've seen the tech sector increasingly play a prominent role, driving innovation, both, again, from their own motivation, but also trying to use the tools and techniques adapted from, you know, modern, uh, in the modern tech community to improve humanitarian response. And there's also new challenges, um, including the increased impact of climate-related conflict. Uh, there's evidence that the Syrian civil war, as part of its uh, root causes, was a drought that took place in Syria over 11 years ago. In Nigeria and the Lake Chad Basin, the shrinking of Lake Chad over the last 40 years has created a massive competition for resources and has led to some of the uh, uh, factors underpinning the conflict in that space. And there are also some trends that are a bit unknown. Um, we think a lot about what the future impact of cyber conflict and space conflict might look like. Um, cyber in particular is a trend that we've seen a lot more activity in the cyber space and the uncertainty about what the humanitarian consequences of a meaningful large-scale cyber attack can look like. Armed conflict and violence are geographically widespread. While the Middle East, North Africa, and Sub-Saharan African countries account for a substantial percentage of the world's conflict zones, we also see widespread and systematic violence and concurrent humanitarian need across Southeast Asia and Central America. Humanitarian needs in Ukraine remain urgent, while in Venezuela and North Korea, not armed conflicts as such, humanitarian indicators in certain sectors are as bad as in places in the midst of decades-long violence. And just as armed conflict and humanitarian need is widespread, the denial of humanitarian access is equally widespread. To respond to this question, CSIS put together a task force last year, chaired by Senator Young of Indiana and Senator Booker of New Jersey, to look at this problem. So what are we talking about when we talk about humanitarian access? Put simply, humanitarian access is the ability of aid, aid to reach the most vulnerable and for the most vulnerable to reach humanitarian aid. We talk about it in both directions. As much as it is a problem when aid organizations are denied entry to a country or to pass a checkpoint, 
The greater challenge is when the vulnerable citizens themselves are denied the ability to move to reach the resources they need. And in recent years, there has been a steep escalation in the deliberate and willful obstruction of access to aid. Humanitarian access is essential to protecting the rights, dignity, and safety of civilians affected by conflict, as established by international humanitarian law, also known as the Laws of Armed Conflict, the Geneva Conventions. The Geneva Conventions signed by every country explicitly say that in situations of armed conflict, parties must facilitate passage for assistance. Access is also implicit in numerous human rights conventions. Put simply, the denial of access for humanitarian need is a violation of international law and potentially a war crime. And at its extreme, denial of access can rise to crimes against humanity. When we think of access denial, the mental image we might be getting is that of a roadblock or a checkpoint. But denial of humanitarian access can take many forms, from mundane bureaucratic delays to horrific attacks on civilians seeking refuge and on aid workers. Access denials like we're seeing today are not new. The modern humanitarian assistance movement was built in response to the denial of assistance in Biafra region of Nigeria during the Biafran War from 1967 to 1970 and the massive airlift that was undertaken to overcome it. However, after a period of relative adherence to humanitarian ideals, access denial has shifted again from being an unintended consequence of conflict to a weapon of war used for political or military gain. And as a consequence, principled humanitarian action is under attack all around the world. These access barriers manifest differently depending on the context. Some examples, in Northeast Nigeria, insurgent groups like Boko Haram in the Islamic State West Africa have terrorized the civilian population. Nearly 8 million people are in need of help. Yet NGOs seeking to provide health care and urgently needed food are attacked by these same insurgents. More troublingly, the Nigerian military itself denies access to NGOs and has used a policy of coercing civilians into so-called garrison towns in order for them to access emergency aid. In Myanmar, the government and the Tatmada, the Myanmarese military, expelled virtually all international organizations at the end of 2017 while carrying out a military campaign of ethnic cleansing against the Rohingya population. In Afghanistan, more than 6 million people are in acute need of humanitarian assistance, yet the Taliban has regularly banned international organizations like the World Health Organization from working in crucial areas. And in Yemen, severe movement constraints for humanitarian organizations regular aerial bombardments, and restrictions on life-saving imports, including food, fuel, and medicine, have created conditions of famine since 2016. When we talk about access constraints, we're talking about three main challenges or three main categories. The first is the violence and insecurity. Physical insecurity is a tragic reality for aid workers and the populations they seek to assist. Between 2014 and 2018, there were nearly 900 targeted attacks on aid workers worldwide, and 90% of them targeted local aid workers. There have also been many attacks on vital physical infrastructure, including health facilities, which are specifically protected from attack in the Geneva Conventions. 
In the Syrian civil war, we've seen the deliberate destruction of the health care system by the Assad government and Russian forces. The secondary and long-term effects of these attacks on health infrastructure are often as debilitating as the attacks themselves. Landmines and unexploded ordnance also restrict areas of operations, with aid workers increasingly are at risk of sexual exploitation and abuse, kidnapping, and arbitrary detention. Humanitarian organizations have a duty of care to their staff. Providing the necessary security and protection for aid workers increases the financial pressures on organizations and on donor governments. The security measures necessary to respond to the insecurity also threaten the perception of neutrality in a conflict. An armed escort traveling in a contested area may give the perception that an aid group is a proxy of one side, creating additional security concern for those workers, potentially limiting future access. Insecurity also takes a toll on other types of infrastructure that humanitarian work depends on. In conflict zones, critical infrastructure often becomes the target of political or strategic control through blockade or checkpoint. In Yemen, armed groups on both sides of the conflict use checkpoints as a means of security control and as a point of taxation for financial gain. Control of the port, port of Hodeida and the humanitarian imports coming through it have been a major challenge. Access constraints in Yemen became so extreme that it took four hours to travel a route that normally takes 15 minutes. The vulnerability of local civilian populations increases as the infrastructure, infrastructure connecting communities and cities deteriorates. Limiting people's movements and destroying their means of mobility also deepens the population's isolation and exacerbates the underlying causes of conflict, such as economic and political fragility. This can exacerbate as well the existing inequalities for vulnerable populations within those communities, including persons with disabilities, LGBTQ individuals, women and girls, and the elderly. Violence and insecurity pose serious physical and psychological risks to aid workers, restrict movement, and limit access to critical infrastructure like hospitals and schools. It is one of the most serious and pervasive threats to humanitarian access and creates undue suffering and loss of life. A second major access challenge is the so-called bureaucratic constraints. Bureaucratic impediments are particularly pernicious when used to impair the ability of aid workers to provide assistance. Some governments seek to exploit aid organizations by curbing the import of aid equipment and relief items. Parties have tried to manipulate humanitarian action by levying excessive taxes and fees or reducing the administrative allowances for organizations to import goods, requiring permits to move and delaying their issuance. It's death by paperwork and it's extremely pervasive. States exploit the visa process to deny access. As mentioned earlier, the government of Myanmar regularly denied or delayed visas for international aid staff working in Rakhine State in late 2017. These professionals who were delayed were thus denied the chance to help Rohingya as hundreds of thousands of them were being attacked and forced from their homes. Short of outright denial, authorities also impose excessive costs for registration and visas. One particularly outrageous example of humanitarian extortion was the attempt by the government of South Sudan to increase visa fees to $10,000 for humanitarian personnel in 2017. These bureaucratic constraints to access are put in place by donor countries and institutions. While all of these 
impediments may not generate the same media coverage and outrage as security incidents, they are equally harmful to the health and safety civilians, the health and safety of civilians and equally difficult to overcome. A third and more recent access constraint comes in the form of donor regulations and sanctions, generally tied to counterterrorism concerns. Counterterrorism and economic sanctions regimes are meant to prohibit international support to terrorist organizations. While critical for national security, these same statutes can block humanitarian access to the population suffering because of those same terrorist organizations. Domestic and international legal frameworks crafted in response to legitimate national, concert, national security concerns do not always account for the complicated situations NGOs find themselves, putting these counterterrorism regulations in tension with state obligations to protect humanitarian assistance under international law. Counterterrorism regulations create a burdensome standard for humanitarian actors, limiting their ability to reach the most vulnerable. Some clauses require organizations to vet, to vet recipients of assistance, even prohibiting the provision of aid to those who may have been forcibly kidnapped by sanctioned armed groups. Aid organizations thus dedicate substantial time and resources towards compliance with an ever-evolving reporting regulation. Navigating the regulatory requirement contributes to financial constraints, which reduces the funds available. In spite of these complications, only in rare cases have organizations turned down funding with stringent requirements. More often, despite strong reservations, the humanitarian imperative compels organizations to conform to donor requirements, despite the legal risk and compliance hurdles they entail. And these policies thus effectively limit humanitarian organizations' operational footprint compelling them to engage in humanitarian activities only in areas understood to be safe from legal risk. This runs counter to one of the core principles of humanitarian aid, that assistance be based on need, and it leaves many vulnerable populations without life-saving support. All of this adds up to dollars and staff capacity being directed to navigating access, access constraints instead of meeting the needs of the most vulnerable. Funding for overcoming these impediments is increasingly hard to come by, and simultaneously donor restrictions tied to funding are themselves an impediment to getting assistance to those who need it. Access, access denial is becoming increasingly acute at a time when humanitarian needs are growing. While the overall number of armed conflicts fluctuates, the severity and length of ongoing conflicts have risen. In the last four years, the average length of crises with the UN-coordinated response has increased from around five years to around nine years, meaning four more years of aid funding on a global scale. As a result, the international community is spending more money on humanitarian assistance than ever before, yet the need is growing faster. In 2018, the total funding received for UN-coordinated appeals was $15.2 billion, a record high. One third of this funding came from the United States. However, 2018 also saw a nearly $10 billion shortfall against appeal requirements, also the largest ever. Meanwhile, rising populism in donor states, including the United States, fuels skepticism about humanitarianism itself and undermines the willingness to tackle some of these access challenges. In our findings, the access crisis is a symptom of broader connected trends. The massive increase in need, 
a collective failure to find political solutions to end conflicts, and the rapid erosion of humanitarian norms. And access challenges are not only obstacles to assistance, they jeopardize our foreign policy objectives writ large. Since the end of World War II, the United States has been a leader in the humanitarian sector, reflecting moral and ethical considerations and the United States' own interest in global influence and stability. And these access challenges undermine these gains. I'd like to turn now to COVID and the impact on humanitarian emergencies. As we've seen in the U.S. and in Italy, where Doctors Without Borders opened a hospital to assist Italian authorities in managing the caseload, COVID-19 is creating humanitarian crises in otherwise peaceful contexts. But humanitarian organizations are increasingly concerned about the potential impact of spread of COVID-19 in existing crises because a series of risk factors and because the challenge of access will manifest in the pandemic response as well. First, as mentioned, many countries in the midst of armed conflict have seen substantial damage to critical health infrastructure. Conflict-affected states tend to have weakened health infrastructure. Displaced populations are especially vulnerable due to the physical environments they live in as a result of armed violence. Dr. Esperanza Martinez, the head of the ICRC's health unit, said that the virus reaching Syria or Yemen would be literally impossible to manage and could bring down entire medical systems in countries like South Sudan and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Conditions in displacement camps and the crowded urban settings that many displaced persons find themselves in are conducive to the spread of disease. Many refugee camps suffer from, suffer from insufficient hygiene and sanitation facilities and congestion from overcrowding. Our official response plan in the United States requires social distancing, a term we've all come to learn. This is physically impossible in many displacement camps and in the crowded urban contexts where forcible displaced people are living. Of particular concern is a highly congested context like Gaza, which is not only crowded, but also suffers from total restrictions on entry and exit by Israeli authorities. In many places, hand washing is a luxury. Running water is often scarce and precious. Deteriorated health conditions for populations in situation of armed conflict also leads to underlying health conditions that it could exacerbate the spread and the impact of the virus. Malnutrition, the psychosocial, the psychosocial stress of living in a situation of armed violence, and a lack of access to clean water and basic medical care means displaced populations are acutely vulnerable. Medical care in many humanitarian contexts is provided by external actors, supplementing or heavily reinforcing state systems. If medical workers from international NGOs fall ill, questions about the ability to stay and deliver services can arise. Again, humanitarian organizations grapple, grapple with the responsibility of duty of care to their staff working in humanitarian contexts while striving to maintain the provision of essential services. Limited access to reliable information for displaced communities will complicate efforts to respond. Disinformation, misinformation, mistrust of authorities, and the absence of communication networks and language barriers all prevent accurate, far-reaching messaging. As we have seen even domestically, clear and reliable information from trusted authorities is essential to generating community buy-in and a community response. In crisis contexts, trust is often missing, 
impacting the community-based response strategies. Even more extreme are situations like Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh, where million, uh, over a million Rohingya refugees are living, where the government has cut off access to the internet and mobile connection networks, making the sharing of information by NGOs, of accurate information by NGOs, even more vital. National policies of isolation in response to the spread of COVID-19 also have negative consequences for persons facing humanitarian emergencies. Colombia, for example, closed its border with Venezuela, which effectively cut off a, quote, vital supply and healthcare lifeline for thousands of Venezuelans. The UN High Commission for Refugees and International Organization for Migration have announced a halt to refugee resettlement programs as some host governments have stopped the intake of refugees as part of their official response. Humanitarian funding, already barely able to keep up with global demand, can also become impacted. Donor states are reconsidering, are considering reprogramming funding already allocated towards humanitarian crisis for the COVID-19 response, or restricting funding altogether as calls for stimulus packages and domestic spending on internal health responses increase. Congress recently passed a $2 trillion stimulus. U.S. funding for international COVID response has been, uh, by the State Department, is $274 million. If we remember that the total appeal for the world prior to this was $29 billion, and the U.N. has now appealed for an additional $2 billion, in a $2 trillion stimulus, this would essentially be a line item. As we stare at a looming economic downturn, there's also concern that remittances, which are an economic lifeline in countries like Somalia, may become even more scarce. The impact of sanctions may become more acute. U.S. sanctions on Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, and elsewhere have the potential to impede the importation of crucial medical equipment. The pace and scope of this crisis is, will further shine attention on U.S. sanctions programs and the need for critical rethinking on humanitarian exemptions and sanctions, regime, sanctions regimes. The humanitarian supply chain is at risk as donors and states gap grappling with the COVID struggle with COVID, struggle to maintain an adequate domestic supply of the necessary equipment. There's an expertise gap. While humanitarians are familiar with diseases such as Ebola and cholera, many humanitarian actors will not have the training or resources necessary to respond to this crisis. As mentioned at the start, my view is that COVID-19 will lead to extremes and patterns already present. While some actors may seek to exploit the disorder present, others may use this as a time to pause. In Yemen, we've seen the Houthi militias responding to Iranian interests, launching strikes at Riyadh, escalating attacks in the middle of a pandemic. In Colombia, contrary, the ELN rebel group has agreed to a month-long ceasefire to allow for a medical response to the pandemic. The EU has called for a cessation of hostilities and a stop to military transfers in Libya to allow authorities to focus on, resp- focus on responding to the health emergency and even the Islamic State has put out repeated messages in its Al-Naba newsletter calling for fighters not to travel to Europe and to reduce attacks while focusing on staying free from the virus. It's too early to say if the threat of the virus has impacted combatant behavior substantially in any major conflict zones, but the potential for a humanitarian pause to respond to the health implications of the virus is worth encouraging. There are deeply important moral questions at play as well. As mentioned, the U.S. has historically been a leader in humanitarian action, with members across parties raising important moral arguments. 
These have included the duty to assist the most, the most vulnerable, along with a sense of responsibility for humanitarian action and context in where the U.S. has played a role. The COVID-19 pandemic is now triggering important moral and ethical questions in our national dialogue. Humanitarian action and conflict is embedded in virtually every cultural tradition. Principles of just war and ethical conduct in warfare can be found in texts from Sun Tzu's Art of War to the Quran. Contemporary humanitarianism, tracing back to 1863 in Italy, with a notion of, is predicated on a notion of moral duty to respond to persons injured in war. Humanitarianism is an enterprise deeply imbued with ethical considerations. Jonathan Authors recently wrote an article in Bloomberg News where he discussed some moral worldviews and how they're playing out in the politics of pandemics. He spoke about Rawlsian theory, utilitarianism, libertarianism, and communitarianism. While this is not an ethical discussion per se, he noted that the Rawlsian theory, that we should pursue a course of action we would want to see when we're behind the so-called veil of ignorance, where we don't know where we would be in a, in a society, is the one motivating some of the responses today. And I think about this with respect to the underpinnings of humanitarian action in general, and believe that this context, con- concept, as it informs our thinking about the COVID response domestically, should also help inform our thinking about humanitarian issues globally, that we should think about them from the perspective of the, of the, of the veil of ignorance. Another ethical issue we're grappling with is around issues of triage. As hospitals in the U.S. grapple with potential shortages of equipment and personnel and the need to triage, lessons can be learned from how humanitarian organizations provide medical care and other essential services in situations of armed conflict. Humanitarian responses are universally underfunded, forcing organizations to make difficult choices about allocation of resources to achieve the greatest humanitarian outcome. The fundamental humanitarian principle of impartiality is predicated on the notion that humanitarian action should be carried out on the basis of need alone. Policymakers in the United States have the opportunity to consult humanitarian organizations and humanitarian thinkers for guidance now on ethically managing these challenging operations with scarce resources. Many doctors are comparing the healthcare response to situations of armed conflict. For those that have spent time in conflict zones, watching the field hospitals go up in New York City was eerily familiar. There's not a universally agreed approach on how to make determinations of need in a triage scenario, but there is a need to think through and have a plan for these decisions. This is an opportunity for us to reflect on the nature of humanitarian need overseas and ensure it is not overlooked and forgotten as Americans consider the challenge faced domestically. As we sit here in the United States, graph uh, dealing with real medical vulnerability, with the U.S. naval ships docked ashore and field hospitals set up in our public parks, now is an opportunity to foster a greater understanding of the needs of conflict-affected and forcibly displaced communities overseas. The risk of forgetting those vulnerable populations is real, and the challenge for us is to make sure that even as we seek a hand up, we extend our hand out to lift those in even deeper despair. Finally, there's an opportunity here for the United States to reassert its leadership. We see media reports that Russia is sending troops to Italy to assist in their response, and China is sending masks and protective equipment to its partners in Africa. It's vital that the U.S. substantially increase its response abroad during this pandemic. Abdicating this moment will lock in the losses for U.S. leadership and would be a tremendous disservice to the humanitarian community. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to any questions.
Thank you, Jacob Kurtzer, for your comments here today. Um, we do have questions from the audience. We've seen or received quite a few, and I'll be moderating the question period. Um, the first thing I'd like to uh, focus on is, are there examples, either historical, um, this, this uh, viewer wants to know, of governments that have provided or have been, uh, that can serve as a model for us in this time in terms of providing humanitarian assistance. Is there any country or government that comes to your mind, Jacob, that have done this well that can serve as a model for us? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as the traditional donors to international humanitarian assistance have been the United States, the EU as a bloc, uh, European countries individually, and increasingly, you know, Australia and New Zealand. The U.S. has always been given the greatest amount, although not as a percentage of GDP. Um, the Scandinavians tend to give a higher percentage. Um, one of the challenges in in looking to other countries is the way in which an individual state gives its humanitarian assistance is deeply impacted by the domestic political environment. And in the U.S., I think the fluctuation of our politics is probably, uh, in the last 15 or 20 years, has probably been a substantial factor in the changes we've seen in the U.S. leadership in terms of humanitarian practice. All that said, USAID and the Bureau of Population and Refugees and Migration at the State Department have historically been exceptionally forward-leaning in terms of developing good practice in the humanitarian sector. Um, they engage it at the New York and Geneva level in terms of developing the best practices, um, the, the policies for how to, how to treat, you know, uh, how to integrate the needs of persons with disabilities, how to improve the monitoring and evaluation, uh, how to make sure no one's left behind. Um, the challenge we find most acutely now is this intersection between the counterterrorism is issue and the humanitarian issue. For those issues, I do think that the Europeans uh, have been a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of trying to find solutions. Canada tends to be uh, a very good donor. Um, but again, um, it always is rooted to a certain extent in domestic politics. So I wouldn't want to say one country has been the best, but I do think looking at the way that the EU, the Canadians, and to a certain extent, the Kiwis and the New Zealand authorities have tried to navigate this intersection between counterterrorism and humanitarian action has been a little bit more forward-leaning um, than we have here in the United States. But I would say that the U.S., even with all the challenges, has generally been a thought leader um, in, in a lot of the humanitarian action. Thank you. And this next question um, uh, is focused on India. Uh, large groups of citizens have no access, as you mentioned in your uh, remarks, to clean water, toilets, and um, there's an egregious uh, example there with the lack of aid and uh, humanitarian efforts. How do they, you know, how can we 
How do these conditions exist or persist without providing support? Um, you know, what is your thought on how we can address um, situations where there is no clean wa- access to clean water, toilets? What can be done? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, I'm, I would caveat this with I am not an infectious disease doctor, a public health specialist, or a water engineer. Um, one of the things that's interesting about the Indian context is um, as, as this situation evolved, there you saw a couple things happen. People focused very much domestically. And then a lot of representatives from the humanitarian community, uh, myself included, put out articles saying, you know, uh, think about how this will impact um, persons affected by conflict. And then there was, you know, uh, you know, generally in social media, a little bit of a backlash saying, well, we're talking about uh, refugees, but, you know, slum dwellers in Brazil or in India are going to have it just as bad. In Johannesburg, I mean, there's all these places where people are living in essentially very similar conditions um, that that challenge the response. And I think we have to think about it two ways, right? In a best case scenario, you um, isolate yourself with six feet of space from your strangers uh, you wash your hands every time you, you know, do anything, I guess. Um, you know, your medical facilities have the equipment that they need. We're, we're not in, we're not in that scenario even here in Washington, DC, where I am, or Arlington, Virginia, technically. Um, and it's clearly not that way in, in India. Um, uh, so the question has become how are, I think for the question for this discussion is how are, organizations that are trying to respond, managing that. And so what we've seen is, I believe, essentially a modified version of the response that we're we're trying to engage in the U.S. there, which is one, information, right? Uh, Humanitarian organizations are, are doing their best to push back against falsehoods about the spread of the disease, but also get as much information out there as possible about the steps that people need to take. So I saw a picture yesterday of a bus station in, um, I think it was in Delhi, where, I mean, you know, people were crowded crowded in, but everyone was wearing masks or anyone I think that could have them have, have been wearing masks. And I think that it speaks to the understanding of you do the best you can with the, with the hand that you're dealt. Um, the second is, I think, trying to uh, focus efforts and resources towards the elements that you can, that you can, right? So if your programmatic work had been prioritized um, on an education program, maybe divert some of that funding to see if you can get um, either water or soap or uh, increased um, capacity for a sanitation facility. But I think that, um, it's it's a real struggle, and I don't think there's an easy answer. And I think what will happen from this is that hopefully sooner or later, when the tide has turned, uh, this will redirect people's attention on uh, you know the ounce of prevention that's that's equivalent to or even greater than the pound of cure. 
And I think one of the things that's ongoing in the humanitarian community is this discussion between humanitarian activities, which are often described as a Band-Aid, right? We're trying to, to stop the bleeding. We're trying to meet basic needs and development activities, which are trying to establish uh, to support governments and authorities in building the critical, necessary, basic infrastructure um, that that the states must, you know, that, that a state needs to deliver for its population. Um, will will this be one of those moments that can be drawn on to, um, you know, work more effectively with state authorities to try to make sure that these kinds of basic systems, a water system. Um, um, basic sanitation systems um, get an increased prioritization um, in in future development and and government planning. But I think I, I don't think there's an obvious answer to what to do in, in a slum where millions of people live without without access to clean water. And, and I think that's that reflects the fear that President Maurer and the you know Jan Egland of the Norwegian Refugee Council and everyone else is talking about is. Um, we don't have any evidence yet, uh, so I think we have to be cautious about making predictions about what will happen. But based on what we know so far, it looks very, very disconcerting. Thank you. Um, and then another uh, viewer asked a question to say more about how the COVID-19 pandemic might shift the equation for humanitarian access as we've heretofore known it. And I would also add for you, Jacob, you mentioned this notion in talking about triage of impartiality that um, humanitarian assistance uh, internationally have used in terms of applying who to treat who, who you will leave behind, who will have access. And so I was wondering if you could talk about um, how the pandemic is shifting that and this notion of impartiality, how governments and providers who do humanitarian assistance are going to have to think differently about that. Um, so I... I may have forgotten the first part of the question, but um, I'll start with the second part. And I think I, I think I know what the first part of the question was. Um, well, the shifting in the equation for access. Yeah, the shifting in the equation. Um, okay, so the the concept of impartiality um, in the humanitarian community, there's a acronym called MIHA, uh, which stands for Neutral, Independent, Impartial Humanitarian Action. When I say principled humanitarian action, what I'm talking about is uh, humanitarian activity that follows or it tries to adhere to these basic ideas. So independent of the political agendas of the donor states or the parties to the conflict. Um, and the impartiality is one of these, that when a, when a humanitarian organization um, is able to respond, it should be responding based on, on need. And, and the, the triage question in terms of the hospitals is a, is a slightly different question. Um, it's based on the triage question and the impartiality question. They're, they're similar, right? Um, when, when an NGO, um, finds itself in a Nigeria or a South Sudan, um, they have X amount of dollars and there's need that overwhelms that, that, that figure. And so they make determinations about where they can have the grace, the, the most, the most impact. Um, triage is, is very much, uh, is a, is a different kind of question. 
Um, triage is about, um, you know, how do you deal with, how do you deal with a system that's overwhelmed? Um, so I, I think there's a lesson to be learned in how organizations have gone into emergency settings and made those kinds of determinations. Um, and I think, you know, there's already examples of um, humanitarian organizations setting up work in the United States. And I think so there is that communication between um, federal, state, health authorities and organizations that have this experience making that that work in, in contexts abroad. Um, how this will affect the access challenges, I, I to a certain extent, I think but where it's where it, it's bad and it was getting worse, like this will make it worse. And where it was improving, where there was opportunities, this may be something that makes it better. Um, you know, the UN Secretary General put out this call for a global humanitarian pause, which is a very, it's, it's exactly what he should do. Um, it's also, I think, a bit ambitious when you think about, um, how these actors and, and states have been carrying out conflicts to, to request everyone to stop because we're facing this crisis is, you know, like good on him, right message, very ambitious. Um, yeah. to, to his credit, the ELN, the, um, the, one of the rebel groups in Colombia cited his, his message in their decision to, to have the pause. Um, I, I think what you're starting to see is an understanding that certain things kind of transcend, you know, uh, transcend front lines, right? The, you know, there is, the fact that even that that the Islamic the Islamic State was making those kinds of messages, I think, sort of probably part one speaks to like the shadowy and loosely connected nature of their membership, but also I think speaks to the fact that people understand that this particular type of threat um, does not does not respect you know uh, a checkpoint or or a border. So how it will impact the access challenges. My hope is, um, one, that some of the bureaucratic impediments that have put it, put it, been put in place by, um, you know, uh, I don't use bad actors, but by some of the governments that have put in place some of these bureaucratic restrictions on humanitarian organizations, when they see that the potential, the virus's potential is not limited to the um, displaced population in their country, but can very well hit them in the government and in the communities that, you know, that their support groups, maybe that will be the kind of moment that, uh, that encourages a reduction in the bureaucratic um, restrictions, the visas, the, the fees, all that stuff, you know, in the Myanmar's and, and, and South Sudan's and Nigeria's of the world. Um, my hope is um, that on the bureaucratic side, on the donor side, um, the urgency of the need will also compel a rethink on some of the um, regulatory requirements that are put in place for humanitarian organizations. I don't see it having a huge impact on violence and insecurity other than what we previously mentioned about some groups seeking a pause and, and some groups exploiting the situation. And then I think about, um, so I think, yeah, I think that's kind of where I would see it. I, I think there's opportunities on the bureaucratic side and, and I'm hopeful 
you know, I'm hopeful that this is a moment. And I, I particularly think about the sanctions. Um, this administration has actually been, uh, interestingly, I think, reasonably forward-leaning on creating humanitarian exemptions and sanctions programs. There's a humanitarian exemption with Venezuela. Um, there's some humanitarian language in other sanctions programs. And I'm hoping that, you know, I'm not holding my breath, but that the the fact that this doesn't know borders may reduce the the unwillingness to break down some of the barriers in in terms of medical equipment and other uh, essential items. And then, uh, Jacob, you touched upon the fact that um, there are populations that are more vulnerable and are experiencing uh, more negative impacts in terms of um, the challenges with armed conflict, uh, environmental challenges, and and COVID, uh, women and girls. If I'm a viewer watching this program, how can I... um, provide assistance or advocate or somehow address a population that is having a disproportionate negative impact from um, these issues, these humanitarian crises? Yeah, I mean, it it requires a a tiny bit of legwork, um, I would say, Uh, but there are organizations that have um, established track records working on specific subsets of the humanitarian response. So, you know, Doctors Without Borders or, or Medicine Sans Frontieres, like MSF, they are known for health work, right? So if you are motivated by the provision of emergency health services, MSF, right? CARE, uh, based in Atlanta, is is particularly forward-leaning on issues around gender and the vulnerability of women and girls um, in in conflict settings. So um, there are groups that work um, on specifically on behalf of persons with disabilities or have or have a unique expertise on those kinds of issues. Um, so you know, in the in the spectrum of humanitarian organizations, right? There are like the WalMarts, which do everything. Right. And then there's the, you know, the very specific organizations that do that do less so. Um, and so I think depending on that on that unique concern that one might have over specific vulnerable populations, um, UNICEF is is a, a children's ba- a children's focused organization in the U- in the U.N. So but I would, you know, uh, I would sort of give a little shout out to care, particularly for their work on on gender and vulnerability. Um, and um, but there's also, you know, other other humanitarian organizations, um, you know, all of them now. When I said earlier about how the United States, even even as I'm sort of critical of some of the what I would call the stepping back from leadership in the in the field, the U.S. has been a leader in um you know, in Geneva at these global forums that set the standards and the protocols of mainstreaming, uh, responding to the uniquely vulnerable communities uh, as part of the international humanitarian standards. So, um, you know, my understanding is that any USAID funded program has to, any grant 
the recipient has to um, be explicit in how that they're going to address a certain subset of requirements and, and gender vulnerability is one of them. Correct. And then um, can you speak to us uh, as well about what's happening domestically in the United States as we're looking at coordination of our humanitarian assistance programs uh, as it relates to armed conflict, uh, environmental challenges, and the pandemic? Is there a, a central group at state or um, congressionally that's sort of coordinating our response in these three areas, um, understanding their interconnectedness and the outsized impact that it's having on our our very survival? Uh, I would start with, uh, to be frank, I don't I don't know the answer to that question. How? how everything interconnects. I mean, we know that there's the task force. We, we see it on TV every afternoon. Um, uh, we know that the State Department and USAID have announced um, uh, funding for pandemic response. Uh, I assume that there is some relationship between the people at USAID thinking about um, reprogramming from their emergency um, response fund that's engaged directly with um, the people in the White House's task force. I think that they're probably being pursued as different tracks. Although, again, I would have to say I don't I don't genuinely know the answer offhand. Okay. Um, but what I think I mean I think it's an important question because I think what you'd want to see um, and what I'm not I'm not sure exists is coherence between how the United States is responding in some of these conflict contexts and how we're responding domestically. Um, and, you know, the World Health Organization is probably the vector between those two as a humanitarian emergency provider in some of those contexts and also as um, kind of the central repository for information um, that people are looking for um, domestically. So I would hope, I would hope that there's coherence and, and some communication. Um, but again, the, the figure, I'm also not a math guy, so I don't know how 274 correlates to 2 trillion, but it seems like a relatively small amount. Um, we're, you know, I, I, I would hope that there is, that that kind of conversation is happening. Um, I, I will, be agnostic as to whether it actually is. Got it. And then, you know, what's your prognosis in terms of a timeline for countries, you could use the U.S. for an example, where there's a shift from, okay, let's stabilize what's going on domestically to looking out, you use the example of uh, Russia and Italy and China with uh, countries in Africa that they're working with. Um, you know, what can we expect in terms of, you know, what makes sense for a country to move from just being inwardly focused to making sure that their partners around the world or potential partners around the world are stabilized and um, getting the humanitarian assistance they need. Do you have a timeline? 
I don't have a timeline. I, I think, you know, we, my expectation, uh, and I don't think it's unreasonable, is that the U.S. federal government should be able to, as it were, walk and chew gum, right? That we should be able to uh, manage a domestic response, even in an unprecedented pandemic of this nature, while also remaining committed to our obligations internationally. Uh, one thing, one thing that has become very clear is um, the the United States has stepped back from leadership in international organizations uh, as a ideological political position. So you have now senior leadership at various important UN and other international bodies um, that are Chinese or, or other, um, you know, other nationalities that may or may not have positive working relationships with the United States. And so there's, there's, I wonder, and I hope that there is a sense of, even if you are ideologically predisposed to not love the UN because the United States gets bashed there a lot, right? To recognize that the UN has a certain function that is important in times of crisis. And this may hopefully be a motivating factor to uh, re-engage at the highest levels um, diplomatically. I mean, one thing that does seem to motivate the current administration is competition with China. And so, um, you know, to the to the specific question of when we will see the, the timeline shift, I, I think we still can walk and chew gum, right? I think we can still respond to New York, respond to Washington State, um, increase the production of the necessary equipment. I'm sure your speaker tomorrow will go into much greater length on this stuff, um, while also working to support our partners, um, our allies, uh, countries that we have historically been leading donors to for the humanitarian response in their response. Um, and I, I don't, I don't have a timeline again. I'm not sort of an epidemiologist in, in that way, but, um, my hope is that it's sooner than later, right? Because I do think, you know, toward, to my last point that, um, this is, this is one of those moments that people may look back on as a, as an inflection point in terms of, um, leadership on the global stage. And I think that now, you know, even while we're struggling domestically, um, the, it almost increases the value of trying to lead internationally, um, to do so while we're struggling domestically, because I think it, it would send the right message to, um, you know, partners, allies, uh, recipient countries and adversaries that the United States remains committed to, to global leadership. Great. You know, um, unfortunately, we reached the point in our program where there's time for only one last question, uh, Jacob. And for this question, I really want you to um, sort of draw the thread that connects you. Um, you know, I was struck by your education and your training, you know, I want to know how um, being a philosophy major undergrad informed your being a, um, a peace fellow and how that informed 
um, the work that you've done and your career. Um, one of the things that, uh, as I listen to you talking, I don't feel afraid about what we're going to do and how we're going to um, navigate these challenges ahead. So speak to us about how your background has brought you to where you are. Uh, okay. Um, I hope she doesn't mind my saying so, but I, my father was a foreign service officer. So we were raised in a, in a house where we lived overseas. And I think we had, um, uh, an eye towards the world and to the, the United States relationship with the world. But, um, growing up, one thing that, uh, I remember vividly is that my mother, uh, who may or may not be watching right now, um, participated in a community service in the Jewish community called the Hever Kadisha, which is uh, a group of people who voluntarily um, uh, take care of the bodies of the recently deceased so that they can be buried with dignity. Um, at the, the idea of uh, taking your time to uh, provide such a compassionate service to an individual who will in no way be able to repay you uh, I think was a meaningful uh, experience to observe growing up. Um, I, 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 I don't want to say I sort of fell into this when I had the, and I worked for the Congressman. Um, he was uh, represented. Um, well, in college, I also, <laughs> I, um, I took a leave of absence at one point and volunteered for the American Anti-Slavery Group in Boston. Um, and that was when I was introduced to, I think, the real humanitarian challenges around the world. And drawing from my experiences growing up, both uh, observing my father's professional career and, and the work that my mother did in the community, I think started to trigger this notion of um, there's, there's opportunities to help in your home community and there's opportunities to help people who are, who are living in wildly different circumstances. I, I did some speaking engagements with uh, an escaped slave uh, from, from Sudan. I mean, the guy was incredible. He made his way to Egypt and, and came to Boston. Um, in Congressman Wexler's office, um, he was very focused on issues uh, because of a large Haitian constituency. We, we focused on what was happening in Haiti. Uh, he also worked um to develop deeper ties between the United States and Indonesia. And while I was working for him was the tsunami. Um, and seeing again um, how both the U.S. responded to that particular crisis, um, I think just that sort of triggered me uh, an interest to continue to work on this in a, in a, as a professional capacity. Um, I don't, I wouldn't give the philosophy degree much credence. Um, you know, the benefit of the philosophy department was they didn't have classes before 11. Um, so, uh, but, um, but I think there was, there was kind of that, that dual element growing up and then, um, having the virtue of seeing what the U.S. could do while working for a member of Congress, um, triggered in me the desire to go work for the organizations. I worked for Refugees International, which did advocacy um, and traveled to some of these conflict-affected places. And, um, and again, seeing, um, you know, just, just having that firsthand experience of, of both um, 
how deeply these conflicts affected people's lives, but also, um, you know, how people, um, struggle to survive and maintain their, their dignity and, and their optimism in many cases. And, um, you know, I think it just, uh, it just encouraged me to continue to, to stay in the field. And, uh, when I was with RI, with Refugees International, on um, every mission, you know, our first stop or our second stop was always with the ICRC. And uh, a former colleague of mine had joined the ICRC. And so every time I came back from a trip, I told him, you know, someday I want to work for you guys. And so it just, uh, it became, it was serendipitous that that timing worked out and I was able to to have those experiences working with the ICRC in Washington. And and. Again, you know, working abroad, I think, um, in South Sudan and Myanmar, um, I think in some ways people, my colleagues join the humanitarian, uh, sector. I mean, it is an industry now, um, for various different reasons. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it, I, I see it as a, as a privilege, uh, to be able to do the work sometimes and, um, so like I said at the beginning, I'm grateful that we can continue to do the work, um, even in a slightly different context in a defense and national security focused think tank. Um, and I'm grateful to you for giving me the opportunity to, to speak with your uh, membership today. Well, our thanks to you, Jacob, uh, for your comments with us today. And I'd also like to thank our audiences joining us and watching the recording and now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 117th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.